Hello. Hi. This is a new Hi. technology for me. Exciting. And how do you hear um, me? Okay, I'm using some headphones that I wanted to make sure. I do. Okay. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Um. Uh. One second. Let me just. Roger. I'm. I'm. I'm doing an interview. A very interesting interview. I'll play for you later. Um. Okay. Bye. Are you coming over? Uh. Whenever. All right. Bye. Sorry. Um. I knew he was gonna keep calling. So I. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. You can hear the Katie Halper Show on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also find extra episodes, bonus content at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Please rate and review us on iTunes. On today's episode, I speak to Dean Spade, a trans activist, writer, teacher, and an associate professor at Seattle University School of Law. In 2002, Dean founded the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, a nonprofit law collective that provides free legal services to transgender, intersex, and gender nonconforming people who are low income and or people of color. Dean's book, Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of Law, was published by South End Press in 2001. In 2015, Dean released a one-hour video documentary, Pinkwashing Exposed, Seattle Fights Back, which can be watched for free online with English captions or subtitles in several languages. And I play part of this during our interview. You can follow Dean on Twitter at Dean Spade. That's D-E-A-N-S-P-A-D-E. Also follow his work at DeanSpade.net. Also stand by for a bonus interview where Dean and I talk about the personal and not just the political which is at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And in breaking news, Dean and the artist Ciro Carillo just released a video, Shit is Totally Fucked Up, What Can We Do? A Mutual Aid Explainer, which I'll play right now. Shit's totally fucked. What can we do? A lot of us are overwhelmed, pissed, and scared. I don't want to wait till the next election. I don't want to just write my congressperson and hope that they'll do the right thing. I don't want to just post things to the vacuum of social media. I don't want to just make statements about things. I want to change how things are. There are a zillion things we can do, and people are coming up with new ones all the time. This video is going to focus on mutual aid projects, what they are, and why we should be developing them right now. Mutual aid projects are a form of political participation in which people take responsibility for caring for one another and changing political conditions, not just through symbolic acts or putting pressure on their representatives in government, but by actually building new social relations that are more survivable. People who are scared about the emboldenment of ICE and Border Patrol and increasing deportations are doing things like forming rapid response networks where people warn each other about immigration raids and help each other hide and helping immigrants do safety planning in case they get detained so that someone is ready to take care of their kids and elders. Some rapid response projects are even working on training people to show up and physically stop ICE from taking someone away. Imagine if we built that kind of power to stop arrests through rapid mobilization of a lot of people to outnumber cops. No More Deaths, an organization in Arizona, works to save the lives of people crossing the border by putting food, water, and supplies in the harsh desert areas where people who are crossing often die from the conditions. There are so many mutual aid project possibilities because there are so many intense ways people aren't having their needs met in the brutal systems we live under. Like food projects like Food Not Bombs, projects where people organize temporary housing for people coming out of prison or foster care by opening their homes to each other, childcare collectives where people watch each other's kids so they can go to political meetings, court, or jobs, projects where people accompany vulnerable people like trans people or people with disabilities to medical appointments or public benefits offices and hearings, 
projects where people make sure neighbors being pushed out by gentrification have good access to information about their housing rights and accompany each other to housing court, help people read documents and defend themselves from eviction. Projects where people protest landlords who are refusing to make repairs or give back security deposits by directly protesting at those landlords' houses and businesses. The messages of this work are, the government is fucked, we can't rely on it. You are not alone. The system is the problem, not the person being targeted by it. And we're gonna take matters into our own hands and help each other survive right now, rather than expecting help from the same systems that have a clear history of causing harm. Mutual aid projects don't just help with the current disasters, they help us prepare for the ongoing disasters that are emerging because of climate chaos and crumbling infrastructure. When we build cooperative projects, practice making decisions together, share things, meet more people in our communities and learn about each other's skills and needs and learn how current systems work and how they are not working, we're better prepared for the next storm, the next blackout, and the next budget cuts. Building mutual aid projects is a way to plug people in, build shared understandings of current conditions, offer meaningful support to vulnerable people, and prepare for the coming disasters. Mutual aid work is not easy. It means forming lasting commitments to doing hard work, collaborating with people even when we have conflict, and facing the heart-wrenching realities of the systems we live under. It is also deeply satisfying work that transforms us from being exasperated, passive observers of the shitstorm we're living in, to inspired builders of the new world we desperately crave and need. Stop believing in authority and start believing in each other. So tell us what you're working on in terms of, you have a mutual aid project that you're working on, a uh, trans military ban project that you're working on. Yeah, there's a lot of different things I'm up to. Maybe I'll, talk, I'll start by talking about the sort of focus on mutual aid that I've taken up since um, the election. So, I mean, Great. first of all, like what, what, what I mean by mutual aid? So mutual aid is a, um, a concept for talking about the part of social movement work where we actually are supporting um, each other through like the direct crises caused by the conditions. So these days, a lot of people, I think, are pretty demobilized. And w there's a couple of different ways we're demobilized. One is that we're told there's kind of like no alternative to the current systems. That's been like a long-term strategy, um, you know, over the last 30 or 40 years to make people kind of stop being able to imagine um, change and, and to think that the system mm -hmm. is the way it is. We have to have this many people in prison. We have to have this kind of border. We right. have to have the banks run everything, whatever it is. Um, that's one major way of demobilization. I think another part of it is that we've been denied like real information about social movement history. Like most of us in the U.S. go through elementary school and like think that like the civil rights movement was just like one or two people doing stuff and yeah. really lost the idea of mass mobilization as what actually gets things changed. Um, and we also have an idea that like will be saved by like the government or like a law will change. And that's the kind of thing yeah. that's, like that we need to win if we want to make things um, better for people who are suffering under current conditions. And then I say like an additional la layer of demobilization that's happening is that um, while on the one hand, like the new forms of media we have really help us get like more information about what's going on, which is awesome and help us like potentially connect with more people. A lot of what it also does is it encourages us to just express our views on social media and believe mm, that we've done I have something. That and I think social media right. is a great entry point for engaging in political work, but it's not actually the end point, right? Because I can I can tell people what I think all the live long day, and A, most people who are gonna see it are just in my own silos, or people I'm connected right. to. Um, but I think I've made this big statement, and I'm potentially spending a lot of my energy like being exhausted fighting in, about these statements, but, but in the yeah. end, like, conditions haven't necessarily changed for people in my community, or people I love or care about, or I'm worried about. So. Mutual aid is like a kind of social movement work that is like 
a little bit in obscured or invisible these days. It's the work that social movements have always done um, to actually help people survive. And so examples of this would, would range. I mean, probably the most famous example of mutual aid that, that activists talk about in the US is the Black Panther Party's various projects like the Free Breakfast Project where they would you know, provide free breakfast to school children and there was also an opportunity there to like talk about like why don't our communities have access to food and what's the government doing and people could build shared analysis and get mobilized to do other stuff together. They also like fixed um, like speed bumps in um, uh, black neighborhoods in Oakland and were like why why is our community not cared for in the um, by the um, by the government in the ways that rich and white communities are cared for. They they engaged in work that directly helped uh, each other. Another example would be like defense campaigns, like when there would be defense campaigns against imprisoned um, black activists. Like they, so directly supporting someone who's in crisis, directly supporting a community with a basic need while also doing that in a politicized way that's like drawing attention mm -hmm. to like the contradiction of the fact that, you know, who's not getting helped or what is the system doing? All social movements have had that. We could think of the example of like, you know, when abortion was illegal, people providing, um, I think about that, that group, Jane, that famous group that was like an underground network for helping people f find access to abortion. Or I think about, um, you know, I think about, uh, it, you know, trans people in the 1970s, uh, you know, like uh, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha B. Johnson were involved in that famous group star. And they actually like, you know, had a house and tried to help people have a place to stay that night. Or I think about mm. today, like queer and trans people, um, in prison, a lot of people are involved in these letter writing projects where we write to queer and trans people in prison because they're so often isolated and they're more vulnerable mm -hmm. when they're isolated. And then you have somebody who can, you know, help look stuff up for you when you're going to get out and where you're going to live and, and, you know, provide basic, basic support or send you 10 bucks so you can have basic hygiene issue uh, items in prison. You know, prison transportation projects where we're like, we're going to all give rides to people because they put their family members in prison four hours away. Right. All right. of these things are examples of, um, like ways that I think what's happening, especially post-Trump election, people are just like dying to actually get involved and actually do something that helps. And I think that those energies get diverted, right? It gets diverted. The ACLU is like, click here if you care. And it's like, or, you know, you feel like you're supposed to have a fight with somebody on social media about abortion or you feel like, yeah. and, and most people I know actually want to like be engaged in something. And also in our society, we're facing like greater and greater, greater social isolation. Like I see this in my students, like people don't have a lot of friends, don't have a lot of social yeah. contacts, spend a lot of time looking at screens. And that makes us all less safe, right? Then it's like, then when you're in the hospital, nobody's coming to visit you. Or then when you're in a domestic violence situation, you don't have a friend to turn to or whatever. We need to like get more mutual support going. So to me, mutual aid projects are like um, a thing I've, that's what I've always been involved in personally. The Sylvia Rivera Law Project is an example of a mutual aid project. We provide like legal help people, trans people facing like a lot of rough stuff in, you know, housing court or, um, or with public benefits or in prisons or jails or in foster care. But this 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 sort of pillar of social movement activism, I think, is a lot less visible today. Even you know, if you look at like in the nineteen sixties and seventies, it's like if you were part of a group, they were like starting a medical clinic for for people in that neighborhood. People were just like doing direct support as part of the work, and it it does a bunch of things. It gives you a place to mobilize your energy. It helps make sure people in your community are actually getting stuff they need, so that they can be part of the mobilization. And because it's really hard to be politically mobilized when you're like not eating or not getting your basic right. healthcare. And it also um, it helps us, like, I think most of us don't actually know all we need to know about the systems that are actually chewing up and spitting out our people. And when you actually go engage with them, when you're like, I'm going to sit here in housing court two days a week and help people through this, even though I've got to learn it myself, or I'm going to walk through people through benefits hearings, or I'm going to 
drive you out to the prison, we all actually learn more about the issues and they become more complex for us and we're less likely to be manipulable with like these kind of token gestures that candidates make or that, um, you know, we're sold as being the solutions. And so we get deeper and we grow more solidarities and we like started because we really were concerned about, you know, immigrant children on the border. But in the process of that, we learned a lot about what's happening for trans people or we learned a lot about what's happening um, in other prisons and jails. Like we, our politics grow through actually this kind of real life engagement. So I, I, I launched a website after Trump was elected because I was felt like this piece was missing and people were feeling desperate for ways to plug in. It's called bigdoorbrigade.com and it's got like a zillion examples of mutual aid projects and tools you might need to start a mutual aid project. And it also has like um, kind of like famous historical examples. It's just a way for people who are dying to get more mobilized to kind of get inspired and maybe see how you do this stuff. You just, you mentioned token um gestures that are kind of um, suggested, encouraged by politicians or made by them. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. I mean, I think a really good example, yeah, from around the same time that I was um, talking about, like right after the election uh, of Trump, where I live in Washington state, the like a bunch of like state and uh, local politicians got together and they had a big press conference and they declared Washington a hate free state. And they got up on stage and they all made speeches about <laughs> right. how they love transgender people and Muslims, right? Because they're like, we love the hated people because in our state, people, right. these politicians want to look progressive. In reality, these politicians are doing the same things that people are doing, such, you know, their equivalents doing in all the states. They're in the in it with the real estate developers, making our housing unaffordable. Right. They are, you know, helping keep prisons and jails actively filled. They are cutting support to the poor. They're a wreck. You know, they're, they're, they're not interested in doing and listening to communities' demands for really ending violence, but they want to get a lot of credit for this kind of totally symbolic um, gesture. Another example of this, I think, all over the country, maybe you've seen this, um, you know, uh, cities are putting in these rainbow sidewalks in gay neighborhoods, um, like rainbow oh, cross crosswalks. And oh, then did not sometimes know that. they're putting in other, like, like uh, crosswalks in particular ethnic neighborhoods with like the flag of that country or whatever like these right. gestures that are like we love these marginalized people but meanwhile like doing nothing about the fact that your jail is full of those people you know being of course um, yeah arrested for misdemeanors so but as you go to visit um people in jail you can feel safe on these uh crosswalks i guess right that's the like the total optics mix, of right? it or all the politicians want to appear like I mean, obviously, like Trump does this unevenly, but there's an idea right. like that everyone includes everyone and there's a, yeah. a ready borrowing. And so they'll just like say the name of a hated group and move on with. I mean, I think about this because recently Joe Biden gave some kind of speech about how uh, about about uh, trans women being killed. And I'm just like, what does he actually right. want to do that has anything to do with preventing their deaths? Yeah. He just wants well, to he also bragged about. Yeah. And he also bragged about. I mean, this he didn't brag about it now because now it's it's not. Uh, good optics to do this, but he did brag in the '90s or '80s about how every major and minor crime bill has the name of the cello- of the Delaware senator on it. Yeah. Um. So he, I guess, would know about that issue. But um, <laughs> when it comes to violence and trans people, um. But he, it's so funny because even like you said with Trump, I mean, I was at the um, RNC. I was in covering it in Cleveland, and I was at a bar. And people were so like taken by Trump at the bar I was in, which is when I was like, he's going to win mm. um, anyway. But I remember watching him actually say he mentioned the Pulse nightclub shooting and how he cared about his LGBTQ brothers and sisters, which is why he was going to keep them safe from a hateful ideology. So he actually like weaponized yeah. wokeness to justify the Muslim ban. 
Yeah, I mean, which you, was I, yeah. If, I don't know if you've seen this, but he's also the Trump administration is saying that they want to be part of like internationally, you know, uh, stopping countries for from criminalizing homosexuality. What that really is is just a talking point for how they're how they're justifying going after Iran by saying right. that Iran is yes. homophobic. Like that's a classic example of like this kind of like strategic use of queer and trans people as like a political football when nobody cares at all about the actual well being of, right. of queer and trans people. Yeah. Right. It's so funny, though, because I wonder if it's awkward if for, like, Mike Pence to hear that. Is he just like, well, we disagree on this point. Um, I don't think that they give – I don't think that they care. Like, I just don't think that – No, I don't either. I just yeah. mean in terms of, like, optics. Like, I wonder, you know what I mean, if, if, if his, like, evangelical friends are like, really? Like, what's going on? I also think that they – that the um, there's not a requirement of consistency. Right, of course. That's – yes, yeah. Yeah, that's a big thing. Also, also, Trump didn't mention Jews or the Nazis during one of the like Holocaust commemoration statements that his administration put out. Mm. And he got pushback for that, which is kind of surreal because as a Jew who's always, I'm always like, not not just Jews, or you can't say like never again, just for Jews, obviously. That's not like the takeaway from the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I'm always like critiquing people saying that something's anti-Semitic when it's just critical of Israel. But it was so weird because I was like, wait, what about the Jews? Which I've like never uttered about any politician in mm-hmm. the United States. Yeah. But he, you know, his administration was like dog whistling. And then they came out with a response that was like, like, a, like a, something we say at the socialist summer camp I went to where it's like, it wasn't just Jews. It was, you know, LGBTQ people. <laughs> it was the Roma. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is so, it's so sword and Orwellian. Um, but going back to the mutual aid issue, you write about and talk about the difference between charity and justice. Um, and where does mutual aid fall in that, uh, I guess, Well, part paradigm. of the reason it's so important to distinguish charity from mutual aid is that Charity, the whole framework of charity, like, you know, what it brings to mind is like, you know, rich Christian people being like, I'm going to buy my way into heaven by giving money to a beggar, right? Like that kind of fundamental model remains the model of charity and social services and philanthropy, which is like a model in which people with wealth determine who are the deserving and undeserving poor. They're like, oh, you're homeless. Maybe we'll help you get into this like long waiting list for housing as long as you're sober and you have children and you're straight and like that's kind of, you know, don't have a criminal record and speak English. Like this kind of, um, this is still the model we have in social services today about like who's the deserving poor and who's the undeserving poor. And that model also presumes that people are poor because there's something wrong with them instead of that there's something wrong with the system, right? It's like, hmm, you know, there's a notion of like everyone can win if they have enough merit. Mutual aid is the opposite of that. Like charity blames poor people for poverty. Mutual aid blames the system. Charity is all about like like maintaining this hierarchy between the social worker or the philanthropist who decides like this is the hot issue right now. We're funding these kind of people and not these kind of people. Mutual aid is about a bottom up. Like we're just going to actually help each other. Like we're just going to start... Uh, you know, a, a plan for having people, people, places for people to live when they get out of prison in our community. And we're not going to like try to get a grant about it and make, try to make, you know, somebody else right. believe it matters. We're just going to actually do this. And it's deeply radical. I think even, you know, thinking about things like food, not bombs, right? That's an example of a mutual aid project. It's not, it's not like a soup kitchen, right? It's mm-hmm. a different sort of model that's very openly politicized and, and also criminalized. And I think that this is important because in, in, U, in the U.S., the, the idea that if you care about, you know, the downtrodden people, you will show up 
once a year on Thanksgiving at a soup kitchen is like, that's one of the demobilizing ideas, right? It's like, let institutions take care of stuff. Primarily, you know, you have to kind of get deal with your guilt by once in a while on special occasions showing that you care instead of, and it's kind of very individualized. It just really misses like, the system is invested in maintaining the concentration of wealth and we're not gonna solve it by like getting the right grant from the Ford Foundation. We actually need to all transform our communities by like housing each other and feeding each other and giving each other childcare and transportation because it's not coming from the top. And so mutual aid right. I think is a very radical framework and that's why the, when we look at radical movements like the Black Freedom Movement in the US or the Puerto Rican Movement in the US or you know feminist movements, they always include this mutual aid element because it's like we're not waiting for someone to come save us. Right. And what is the difference just like using the food, not bombs versus a, a soup kitchen? Because I understand the ideological framing of it and the political framing of it. But what is the difference in terms of how it um, like how does that manifest itself or how does it function differently? Well, I think a few things. So one thing is that mutual aid projects tend to be not professionalized. They tend to be um, volunteer based or volunteer sort of dominant and not hierarchical. So it's different if you join, if you're like get a job at a, at a homeless shelter and you're like, I'm the, I'm the social worker here I ha or I'm the, you know, basically hall monitor or whatever. And I have to enforce these rules. And if they, if I see somebody and I think they've been drinking, I have to kick them out and give them a mark on their record so they won't get here again. Whereas a mutual aid project is like, you don't have a boss. It's like we, you know, you and I, Katie, we get together in our neighborhood and we're like, we really want to figure out what happens when people get out of jail, this jail that's in our town? We're going to hang out outside that jail and offer people phone calls and offer people um, a ride. And we're just going to create a schedule and do that and give people what they need and learn from them more about what they'd rather see here and figure out what the, what, notice what the trends are. And it's not like I'm the boss or you're the boss or any other 20 people working with are the boss. We're going to make decisions together as a group, usually by consensus. I mean, those are some, obviously mutual aid projects vary to some degree in how they organize themselves, but those are some kind of elements that are really different from like a capitalist, professionalized, not profitized, philanthropically, you know, determined type of structure that you would see in a typical like social services agency versus like a group that's like, we actually know the problem is capitalism and racism and sexism and stuff. And we're actually going to like, you know, we're interested in all of us participating and all of us getting to bring our wisdom to this. And we're not going to be like, um, whoever has the highest college degree in this room is the one who gets to make the decisions about, about who will help and who we won't help. Right. Like that's, that's currently the model. Yeah. Um, and also the thing I always think about with charity is how much it, it like, as you said, it blames people. And it also is based on like, you're doing people a favor. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not trying to, um, res you're not responding to an injustice per se. You're just like being nice. Um, as opposed to, you know, and then you, you don't, you just feel like you can pat yourself on the back. Um, yeah, it's but totally there isn't, yeah. moral. it's a moral framework. It's like, you're, you, they have bad, they have bad morals. If they like, it's like people are in a bad situation because they have bad morals, unless they like, like gratefully accept your charity and do exactly as you say to tell, as you tell them what will make them successful, you know, like it's, yeah. 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 Um, and what about the, um, the the trans ban military ban yeah this is like a very interesting topic um and i know personally i'm often challenged about how I, twitter is obviously like you said it's a limited thing but um i think i remember like retweeting someone who is a trans veteran and it was something about the trump ban and i retweeted it and then i got kind of understandable pushback because it was not my t the tweet i was retweeting wasn't kind of sufficiently critical of the 
military? Mm-hmm. Or how do you balance the question of equality with the question of anti-imperialism? I mean, I just yeah. over, that's kind of a, a clumsy way of putting it. Not but how do you, yeah. Oh, well, I think that's, a, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the way I think about this is that, so there's been this long, you know, kind of longer trajectory because first there was the whole gay and lesbian military um, inclusion thing. And that there's been a live debate in queer and trans communities for at least 30 years about whether or not this is something that we should seek, right? But that debate doesn't get seen because the corporate media only covers the most corporate and conservative queer and trans politics, right? That's like, it only covers those advocacy groups that are say, that are always saying like, we love the police, we want to be part of them, we love the military, we want to be part of it, we love marriage, we want to be part of it. But so, yeah, exactly. I mean, all of those, all the well-funded ones are all mimicking the same agenda. That's an agenda that says, rather than we're part of the left and we oppose institutions of harm, it says we want to be part of them, right? And so that with the military, this is like the most egregious and, and easy to look at because, of course, so many people see themselves as anti-war, but when they see these images of like two gay officers or two trans officers or whatever, they, they suddenly feel like they're supposed to feel patriotic. Like it's almost as if, the way I think about it is that you take the feelings we all have about queer and trans movements or other hated groups, like where we associate these people with liberation and freedom. And then you borrow that sentiment and you throw it on top of the military, like a rainbow flag wrapped around a tank. And so that suddenly mm, you right. see the military as a site of liberation. And of course it's a terrible job, right? We've seen these, all these exposés about the levels of sexual assault in the military, the levels of racist enforcement in the military, who gets dishonorably discharged. We see all that news about, you know, vets and suicide. We'd see all the ways that right. vets are like abandoned by the VA and not getting the care they need and people are forced to redeploy. You know, we, we know what the military is as a job, not a good job. And then we also know what the military does in the world, being like the largest right. source of violence in the world, the largest polluter in the world. And, and the moments of military inclusion campaigns, whether they're the current ones, like the trans one, or whether they're older ones, are moments of like rebranding and mm-hmm. positive PR for the military. Right. And so that's why this whole thing has with the tra- with Trump's trans ban has been really, really hard because there's been no media coverage, in my opinion, even on the left, about mm. an anti-militarism framework around this, right? Suddenly it just becomes only these wonderful stories about these um, trans soldiers and how wonderful, they, how much they love their job in the military and how proud they are to serve. And literally anti-war and anti-military frameworks or even realism about what it is to be a soldier or what the military does like just falls out and i've seen this again and again and um and even the progressive media and i think that's right pretty effective pinkwashing right like that's brilliant yeah. if you take if you take left or progressive people and help them forget that they're anti-war that is brilliant and i think that's happened you know the thing about pinkwashing is it's is this is never about trans people's well-being, right? This is only about, um, you know, if you, for example, if you look at who who's funded primarily the trans inclusion um, work around the military, it's Jennifer Pritzker, right? She's uh, the first trans billionaire. She's actually a multi-billionaire. She's from yeah. one of the wealthiest families in the United States and I think probably the world. She um, has a pro-military um, foundation called the Tawani Foundation that just like celebrates the U.S. military. And she has thrown tons of money at the idea of getting trans people into the military. So you've got one person who's heavily, heavily influencing what we all see as a trans issue nationally, right? That's even right. before Trump makes his tweet. Um, and then we, we're just back in this reactionary politics where we're like, well, Trump's against us being in the military. So now we're for it. And I think that right, works exactly. on trans people, but it also works on straight non-trans people. Yeah. That's who is actually the targeting of most pinkwashing. Like, right. it's, I think that's true with like the history of the gay marriage stuff where people like abandon their yeah. critiques of marriage and are just like, if you're not for same-sex marriage, then that must mean that you're, that you're homophobic or that's the truth of 
sort of all these moments in which we're supposed to celebrate that there's a queer police officer or a trans police officer, like all of these moments where these institutions kind of get a makeover um, based on borrowing the idea of liberation that has been developed by our movements. And queer and trans people fundamentally don't get anything out of it, in my opinion. Right. It's funny. Yeah, it's it, it's there's like a lot of straight guilt where I feel like if I were part of the group, what you know, if I were a member of the LGBTQ community, and I saw that, I'd be like, fuck that. That's such bullshit. Like, stop trying to use my identity to forward imperialism. But as someone who's trying to be, and I'm just being like <laughs> candid here, like trying to be an ally, I don't know how to, and this, I'm, it's like a an unintended, oh no, I guess it's an intended consequence, right? Because you, this the system makes people feel like the way to be a good ally is like you were saying, kind of you like check your politics at the door like your anti-war politics, mm-hmm. you check it at the door because you don't want to be seen as, like you were saying, homophobic or transphobic. Yeah, and I, I think that we see this, like, I mean, you, you and I both care a lot about Palestine liberation and, and the, you know, and I think we see this, you know, the state of Israel has been the leader in this. They've been promoting their military as queer and trans inclusive for years. There's all these propaganda photos. There's, they, there's a trans um, IDF officer who for years just toured the US and um, and Canada and Europe talking about how he was a trans IDF officer. That was his job because that's basically a propaganda right. job. And they also yeah, promote Hasmara. their military as a vegan and how you can have oh my God, a vegan diet so and be in the Israeli military. Like all, anything that will make the, a right wing thing look um, progressive is a, is a PR move. And I think it's interesting the position that you're talking about of like when we're not part of the group and yeah. then we're told we're supposed to have this view or we feel that pressure. I think the thing we can always say is like we can say I'm against Trump's transphobia and right. I'm against U.S. militarism. And yeah. if I'm really against Trump, then I have to be against U.S. militarism. Like we have to we have right. to like have the discernment to take that apart. And I think in these times people feel really scared of being like taken down on the internet and things like that totally um, yeah i think canceled, we have to a little canceled. bit be like i'm willing to actually stand up for what i believe in because i'm part of a global movement that lasts hundreds of years against u.s right. militarism it's like a lot harder for non-jews to be like shut up with your like a conflating anti-semitism with exactly that's we should have we should have talked about that example because that is like even more i think high pressure and terrifying yeah, exactly. Because you really will get canceled, like yeah. by jobs, like Mark Lamont Hill style. Yeah. And, and it really is a sinister thing where I think sometimes people really do intentionally use that stuff to pull the conversation right. Yeah. Um, and so also, I know. think some people will just be like, I mean, because a lot of people really attack me, other trans people, for being anti military inclusion. Yeah. And they're just like, you know, but if, if but if you said it, they could be like, and this is a non trans person telling exactly, us what we should want. Exactly, right. And so it's right. even more vulnerable. And I think that's why. For me, when I'm taking similar stances in solidarity with somebody who I'm like, I'm going to lift up the voice of the people from that community who are saying like, no to this, right? Right, exactly. Because that yes. is, because that it's important to show that that the analysis comes from there. And also because a little bit, it heads off that lie that every single exactly. person in the trans community wants the same thing or every single Jew wants the same thing. It's like the apacization of different mm. uh, groups and like identities also. Because it's Everything like the loudest. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Israel, I think, is the original pseudo-woke entity, by the way. Yes. Yeah, so uh, right. much of the, all the politics we're talking about gets developed around that issue first. Yeah. And it's, and it's so funny because it's like exactly they weaponized the pain, which obviously we know about what happened. Like, we're not dismissing it. And obviously, also, it's not like Israel was 
founded and uh, because of that in terms of like neocolonialism or the British Empire, blah, blah, blah. But uh, it is, you know, it's like using that to justify ethnic cleansing as a great gig. And I think the, P- the place where Israel's ahead is on PR. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, exactly. That's, that's what I think is the leading edge is that they've really, they really totally. invested a lot in these strategies to make themselves look progressive or vegetarian yeah, the great, or whatever. Yeah, the nightlife, the gay nightlife. Yeah. Like I remember during the Democratic Platform Committee meetings, um, this uh, woman who's a lesbian who was on Hillary's, appointed by Hillary, was like, Tel Aviv is the only city in the Middle East where I can walk around holding my wife's hand. Oh, yeah. And Jim Zogby, who was like trying to get the word occupation written to the platform, was like, I can't even get through the airport to yeah. get through is- to Israel. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Did you, have you watched the Pinkwashing Exposed documentary that we made? It's free online, and I'm always trying to get people to watch it and just do screenings in their own communities and on their campuses for free. I feel like it, in my mind, it's like a distraction technique to be like, look over here, look over here, don't look over here, and all the other things that we're doing that are really horrible, and all the people we're killing, but look over here and think about rich gay people and how they want to come visit us and how great we are. With a gay scene that competes with all gay capitals around the globe, an amazing beach, good weather, great food, and other attractions in the country like Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, Tel Aviv is definitely a place you should go and check out for your next trip. There is no magic pink door in the apartheid wall. We may be queer. I can show up at, an, uh, at Ben-Gurion airport and say, I'm lesbian, let me in. They're not going to do that because I'm Palestinian. So when you say gay friendly, which gay person are you talking about? And then we have like little breakout parts like, what is normalization? You have these Israelis who are talking about the struggle for gay rights in their society. And what it does is say it's a totally normal state of affairs that Palestinians are occupied in the West Bank are un- and East Jerusalem are under siege in Gaza. The Palestinian citizens of Israel, a full 20 percent of the citizens there, are subject to an entirely different set of laws than Jewish citizens of Israel. That these true and very clear violations of international law, violations of human rights are happening, that those are totally normal. And upon the top of them, we can have a conversation about the day-to-day to to and fro of Israeli society, and that those things are political, and that everything that happens on top of them is just civil discourse. And what that does is it normalizes uh, the relationship between oppressor Israeli government and the oppressed Palestinians, and says that this is not even part of the conversation. I'm part of this project called Queer Trans Warband, and last summer we launched a toolkit online for doing outreach at your own um, pride events and queer events about um, opposing uh, trans, um, opposing U.S. militarism, and also like kind of counter recruitment information so that trans people can get real information and queer people about joining the military and learn, you know, not get lied to by recruiters and. We were trying to like really help people reframe this issue, and so we made stickers and posters, and people could go to their own events and print the stuff and like um, give it out. And a lot of conversations I had with people as they were getting ready to go to, you know, for example, I talked to these young people who were going to go to Tacoma Pride. Tacoma is a city near where I live in Seattle, and it's got a really, really, really big military base next to it. And they were like, "Yikes, I'm kind of scared. Like, what will this conversation be like? What if somebody?" Um, disagrees with me who's in the military and what if like right. the, I'm white and they're a person of color and what and they say that you know my community needs this job opportunity and I was like the thing about it is is it, it's okay to have your principles and for people to disagree with you and to know that you're actually standing up 
as you're like you're signal boosting like global movements it doesn't come down right. to you and this person and which one has an oppressed identity like that's just not a robust political framework and that's really hard for people right now because i think and that, it, it lets us ask ourselves am i just trying to get congratulated <laughs> right, on my right. politics or am i trying to end the violence you know like yeah that. exactly or like avoid these uncomfortable uh, things right yeah. like how much is it about the fear of, of being canceled or cancelable right. but that's exactly like what you just mentioned about if you're let's say a white person talking to a person of color there's this you know and this is I think a dangerous part of I don't want to say of identity politics because I don't want to say that in a reactionary way but like the I would say the hijacking of identity yeah. politics and that's um, the world we're living in right now it's like that you know, yeah. as soon as the, as soon as the police kill someone they try to put a um a, a government official who's black in front of the camera yeah like, the government exactly. is on to the fact that that yeah, of yeah, this kind of useful, misrepresentation right? politics and that and you can you can find you know queer and trans and people of color and of people with disabilities who will say pro-police pro-military things because of course we're all very complex communities and we have to be not a monolith to, right we have to be able to actually have principled disagreements that don't just stop at identity which doesn't mean we ignore right. the complexities of how identity brings us to our experiences and to our views. And I think that right. that balance, right? I mean, I think you demonstrated that balance earlier when you were like, I retweeted this thing and then I got this feedback and listened to it. Like that's all we can do is like stand up for what we believe in and also be willing to hear feedback and actually think through that feedback, not just have a knee jerk to that feedback, but be like, huh, like how does that balance with other things I've learned? Do I need to do any research? Maybe I want to talk to more people instead of just like, oh God, someone different than me said I shouldn't say this. So I, I'm going to shut up or, you know. Yeah. And there's definitely this in thing in my head I hear myself where someone's saying like, easy for you to say, or it's such mm -hmm. a luxury. And of course, I do think about, you know, like when you're more working class, how it is an education ticket for some people, the military. And I think it reminds me of what you said earlier. You brought some, you, you said something about like the demobilization and how people kind of are forced to think that, that the system that we have now is the only possibility. Mm. Um, and that's part of how it works. It like we're tricked into thinking that like there have to be borders or there have to be jails. I think that's what you had yeah. said. And how, you know, if we focus on, you know, we can acknowledge that people, some people are on a systemic level kind of like forced more than others to go into the military to have access to certain things. But that our focus on organizing may not be that it could be on uh you know, education in itself. Yes, I so think that people don't have to. Should join you have the to join to the military it. to go to college? Should you? And, and also, right, exactly, yeah. do people actually get that? I think there's just a lot of lies mm -hmm. about how much people get the GI Bill. There's a lot of people who get dishonorably discharged in ways that relate to being sexually assaulted, to being a person of color. I mean, like the the levels of injustice um, within the military. I, I did an interview last year with this um, trans woman of color who was in the military, you know, she talked to me about her experiences of being, um, she wasn't out as trans at the time, but she experienced a lot of gender harassment because she was obviously gender nonconforming and people could tell mm -hmm. in some way and also a lot of racial harassment. And then she told me all about getting like very, very, very injured in war and being, um, coming back home and being like, you know, told she had to go back in even though she couldn't even walk at that point she yeah, had to redeploy yeah. and there was so much pressure and like some higher up in the military sat her down and they were like we're erasing your medical records you're going back and there was so much peer pressure from her unit who had a lot of you know like closeness and she was so overwhelming and it was like she was afraid she was going to get killed by people if she didn't go back and the level mm. of harassment and fear and like she and she told me about how the, the the base that she'd been part of has had like all these um 
investigations that show that lots and lots of people are forced to redeploy while they're still very, very sick and disabled. And like, I just was like, this is not the ticket that people are being sold when they're like, you'll go to college. Like not at all. Like neither what she had to do while she was there, the trauma and pain and disability she lives with now, the kinds of pressure to continue. Like I just, it's, this is not a way to go to college. And I think our movements can demand more. And if people have survived and gotten through, if somebody's parent or family member like somehow got through it and, and, and did it like, you know, yes, we all, there's lots of scrappy ways that people get through, but that's not a way of saying like, this should be the horizon of liberation and therefore we should never critique it. (laughs) Like, Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also goes to the kind of question of critiquing the system versus the individual, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think some people feel bad about being anti-military because they don't want to make it look like they're vilifying a person who felt like they had to go to get access to education. Like whether, I mean, I don't know the numbers about that. And for, and it sounds like you're saying that's a PR thing also. Uh, But if you, you know, it's, it's not about the person, individual person making the wrong choice. It's about, like you were saying, why is that the something that people either have to do or feel like they have to do but we have these conversations with everything it's like i'm like i yeah. oppose marriage and people are like i'm so offended right. that i'm married and i'm just like dude like this there's a the government has a system that makes your life more livable if you do its gender and family norms that's not okay i'm not like insulting your personal marriage right right yeah <laughs> yeah you should go to weddings and be like the wedding crasher you should just like object to people's marriage proposals <laughs> The nice thing about the military thing is that it's so over the top bad. Like the institution is so bad. It's like a killing machine. And I feel like with marriage, it's it's more complicated because it's a bit more, it's like harder to, to, to show that it's destructive. Well, I think that that's what's interesting. So I think that the second wave feminist movement of the 60s and 70s and 80s really took marriage, um, you know, in its crosshairs. It really said, like, look, you know, um, we pretend this is a place of of love and family and connection, but actually this is a place of violence. This is a a way that the government um, distributes well-being. This is, you shouldn't distribute, you know, immigration this way because it leaves people in domestic violence situations. They did a lot of things to try to change the laws to make it easier to get out of marriages. Like it was very hard to get out of marriages. And that's a really big deal of trying to take. And then also at the same time, there was a lot of work to try to destigmatize um, illegitimacy because children were right. outside of wedlock, like literally had difficult time accessing certain basic benefits and programs. And that a lot of that was actually after it became explicitly illegal to exclude black people from things. Uh. They used illegitimacy laws inst- instead because, of course, black people marry less than white people because in general, poorer people marry less than richer people still because marriage is primarily about sharing benefits and property. And if you have less of it, there's less incentive to marry, right? So mm-hmm. so the feminist movement did a lot of work, I think, to delegitimize marriage. And, and you could see that a lot of people started living together out of wedlock and a lot of people, start, it, it loosened up a lot of stuff. And I think it's interesting how the same-sex marriage advocacy actually reinvested um, marriage with like, oh, marriage is about love and dignity. And like that, those were its talking points. And it showed us endless images of people like being happy and needing to be called marriage that what they're doing and all of that kind of like re, re um, like brought this nostalgia for marriage and brought all right. of this, like, uh, you know, I think disgusting emotional attachment to marriage that makes people think their lives that basically says our lives aren't worthwhile unless we organize them in this way that the government likes best. And 
I, I think we really undid a lot of the radical work mm. of feminists during that period because people thought of marriage as a site of um, liberation for gay people instead of thinking it as a site of control and property distribution for all people. And that's what it actually is still, right? It's just now some different people can access it, and it, but it still benefits the same set of people. Like most undocumented people are not dating somebody who's documented because we mostly date people we know who are from our communities. So there's no win there. Most poor people aren't dating someone rich that that, that they'll class up right. if they can marry them. That most people without health benefits aren't dating somebody with, you know, so the idea, it doesn't, it doesn't help us with like the, the problems it promised to help with. It didn't make queer and trans people less like poor and marginalized. It just made right, those who have property yeah. able to better protect it. Also, I mean, I, I just hear in my head, like the, the, the like, well, what about people who do it for healthcare? And there are two issues. One is like, again, it's a focus, right? Because wouldn't it be great if we were fighting for healthcare as opposed to for people who get married? Yeah, we could so have done that a lot of healthcare. ways, right? So one thing is that all of that effort that and the gajillions of dollars spent on same-sex marriage advocacy could have gone towards you know Medicare for all or universal right. healthcare. Or another route that this all could have gone would be strengthening it through labor activism and then having it be about yeah. um, if if we're talking about healthcare through employers, having it be that you push through union contracts and through labor power to make sure that employer the employees can always share their health care with whoever they want which ideally right. would be a much broader set than just their romantic partner like there's so many more left ways we could have queer and trans people could have been plugged into a um to a health movement this mm -hmm. was the most conservative option and therefore it delivered health care mostly if to anyone to wealthy people's you know and their right. partners yeah. And also I think of people like being able to have their loved ones at their bedside when they're sick or something. And then it's like, why can't we have a society where like you're allowed to be visited by people who aren't your married, your spouse? Right. Like, I mean, that's actually know. easier to fix in some ways. I think also it was really interesting after same-sex marriage was legalized, there were all these stories that came out about people who were married and the hospital still wouldn't let them in, right? Because oh, the reality yeah. of how homophobia, transphobia work is that like, it often doesn't matter. It's in the same way that how racism right. works the and papers, how yeah. homophobia works. It doesn't often matter what's on paper. So I think the other thing is like there's this way in which because that conservative white-led, lawyer-led um, like set of gay elite orgs that emerged in the yeah. 80s and 90s, because they were so invested in legal change, they and they see that as like the end-all be-all, which of course anybody who's poor and actually living in the trenches of the society knows that like the law doesn't matter, right? Like the cops will do whatever they want to you. They don't care what the law is, the, like the, you know, the person, the low level clerk at the DMV or the welfare administration or whatever, they all do whatever they want to you. So right. the idea that these things are like this golden shield that will make you legitimate, both invests in and, and reifies the legitimacy of marriage and the illegitimacy of everyone else. And it also is a lie, right? About, cause it, 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 that will probably work better if you're like white and upper class and employed da, 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 and it probably won't work that well for a lot of people. Right. There's this like, discourse around privilege and leftism that is so convenient if you're kind of a, uh, a pseudo-woke neolib, which is that it's, oh, it's easy for you, right? It's like, it's so easy when you're privileged to, to, to have these radical views. Do you know what I mean? It's like a way to, to, to suggest that there's this like default, uh, working class and poor default 
that it's almost it's like almost this infantilizing thing where oh look at you with your like with your radical ideas and challenging the you know marriage as institution well people who are struggling they never think about this have you have you encountered this at all this kind of this framing yeah what sometimes happens with my students is that when we're learning about social movements which of course they've been you know mostly denied that information and so it's like a big new world they think all this stuff is coming from like upper class rich people and I'm like oh guess what nope all of this stuff comes from the people who are on the front lines of harm. And then sometimes it gets lifted up and talked about by various other kinds of people. And those people sometimes right. publish books about it or make their movies better or whatever they do. But it's so demented and backwards to to think that um, radical analysis primarily comes from elites. Like absolutely not, right? And I think this this question, this dilemma that you're asking about, about like whether or not um, you know, radical when people think radical analysis comes from elites or is right. an elite thing, you know, I'm from a white working class background in the South. And, um, you know, when I look at people in my extended family, like especially my foster family, a lot of them, I think, are people who like support Trump because they um, buy into the idea that they could be him, right? Like there's this, mm-hmm. there's an, there, it's not as if there are no mystifying factors in our, in our political realm, right? So it's not as if all people right. just for the fact, just because they're on the bottom of the economic ladder immediately think, there's something wrong with capitalism, right? There's mystifying mystifying factors like white supremacy, like the myth of meritocracy that can make us identify with things that actually harm us. And that example is very clear in the, in our lifetimes, Katie, you know, of um, white working class people being, but this is, you know, goes beyond our lifetimes, being sold the idea that investing in pro-criminalization or anti-immigrant politics or neoliberal economic policies that actually, um, you know, reduce wages for white working class people also. And also, you know, that, that stuff is, going to somehow benefit them because they're identifying with people more late than them. I was just having this conversation with um, my friend Maru Mora Viapando, who's a um, undocumented immigrant um, activist here in the um, Washington, here in Washington state, who's very like very fierce, brilliant person. And she told me about two things that kind of relate to this. One is she told me about how um, during maybe a few years back, like during one period where there was conversations happening nationally about comprehensive immigration reform, she went around the state and did like dozens and dozens of workshops with other um, undocumented migrant communities. They were doing these workshops in Spanish where they would print out the immigration reform bills and proposals and Mm -hmm. they would, uh, and everybody would read through them and be like, yes, we don't like this. Like as soon as people got a chance to actually analyze for themselves what it was, instead of just hearing it mentioned in the, um, in the, uh, media, they would be like, no, this is not going to solve our problems, or this is going to leave out part of my family, or this is going to be available or accessible to me. And to me, that's an example of like very fundamental social movement work. Like social movements are always trying to fight mystification and trying to fight the distortions that come through media or through electeds. And like, that's part of what political education is, is helping, you know, or the work that, that you and I both do of trying to talk frankly about the fact that critiques of Israel are not anti-Semitic and that all Jews right. do not need to be bought into an apartheid state regime, you know, that's not, but we are hailed as Jews and set, and we are told for your own safety, you must support this terrible thing that in many ways has nothing to do with you, you know? Um, so I think that that right. in the same way that my, my relatives might be feeling hailed by um, the Trump administration to identify with policies that actually will end up harming them in their communities, because there's an idea that somehow that's, it's for them or will benefit them or that someday they'll be the people who benefit from that. So I think right. like, this complicated thing where it's like, we want to be frank about the fact that yes, there's a lot of mystification and distortion that prevents people from 
always getting to like have good information about what will what's causing some of their suffering and what will help them and that's how scapegoating works is that people are told somebody else is causing their suffering who's not and on the other right. hand we don't want to buy into the idea that like good answers come from elites like that's the charity framework right. buys into that it's right. like oh exactly. the right person's going to graduate from harvard with the right idea to solve poverty where it's like you know what we don't need anyone else to graduate from harvard to know why there's poverty it's called capitalism white supremacy and we can actually poor people will know a million ways we could solve it by like putting more buses on the roads and like changing yeah, the exactly, schools right. and raising the right. wages and so and providing more affordable housing so there's a lot of like i think um uh there's complexity here about being right. like yes you might have maru moraviapato also um told a story at an event we had recently where she was talking about how in in her context of doing a lot of work with undocumented people and fighting to get the um, immigration detention center closed here in washington she has also noticed that a lot of people in her communities have a huge critique of ice but don't have the same critique of the cops and so she's like this is kind of yeah, a, p- yeah. a place where she's doing a lot of work where she's like I- i'm i'm trying to work with my communities to have people apply the analysis they have of ice to the cops like she can see that there's still mystification still dilemmas of um of gaps and that's a totally normal thing that social movements are always engaged in we're always engaged in trying to build a shared analysis understand the problems better notice what we're not noticing who are we leaving out um and where are we buying into fake solutions right like more yeah. cops is often a fake solution that's sold to all kinds of vulnerable people yeah exactly or i just had alex um Vitalian, yeah uh and he was talking about how you know we think it's we need more training or more cops com- uh, policing their own communities yep. um you know, if we have, if only we had a more diverse uh, police force and how, you know, that doesn't actually, I mean, besides it kind of missing the point, it doesn't even have the, just like statistically, it, it doesn't work. You don't have like less, because it's systemic, you, you're not going to have less harassment yeah. when the cop is not white, of non-white people. Right. I, Dylan Rodriguez, who's another prison abolitionist uh, scholar and activist, makes a lot of similar points. He looks at the history of the LAPD and how they, yeah. you know, they're such, such a widely known, you know, racist force. Um, and then they they respond to that by, quote unquote, diversifying the police force. But it's the same violence. And I think this is an interesting one way I like to think about this um, is I, I got this from Ruth and Craig Gilmore. They wrote an essay that's in that really good book, Policing the Planet. And they said that, like, in moments when the police, but we can think about other institutions, the military or whatever, when in moments when these institutions face a legitimacy crisis, mm-hmm. they often engage reforms that actually expand them and right. expand their reach. So like the police face a huge legitimacy crisis in the 1960s and 70s social movements that expose them as, you know, so racist and so brutal and anti-poor. And then as a result, instead of policing shrinking, it actually grows. We get dare officers in the schools. We get ideas right. of police as homeless outreach workers. All of our cities right. have more police with more tanks and more militarized cars and more, like all of it expands. And now we're going to have women police. And now we're going to have people right. color police, all of this stuff. And so I think for us as social movement actors, this is huge because we have to ask ourselves, okay, when we've provoked a crisis, thank God that's really good work. We should be happy about that. But that is not the end of the story, right? And so what we're seeing right now is that I think, you know, the work around, you know, from the activism around Trayvon Martin to Ferguson to Baltimore, all of these things have provoked a crisis around policing. And you get a response where you get you know, sheriffs and prosecutors, all these people are like, don't worry, we'll take care of it. We've got proposals. And just the kinds of, you know, um, not useful proposals that Alex Vitelli was critiquing in your interview. And we have to say, like, how are we going to discern what is a useful or not useful reform? And how are we going to push back when they say they've taken care of it? Because the dynamic with social movements across U.S. history is that we cause, we cause problems and we say this system is, is not okay. And then they say, 
we've taken care of it. And then the U.S. Um, population believes it's been taken care of. Right. So people in the U.S. think racism is over or think sexism yeah. is over or think the LGBT people were fine under Obama, but right, now Trump exactly, is a problem. Yeah. All of these things that are just totally off. And that right. is about us not having, I think, a lot of literacy about the systems we live under mm-hmm. and also about having a media dominated by elite interests. So we get this like very thin version of the news. Right. Or with immigration, for instance. Right. I mean, looking at the what the Obama administration did. Um, I mean, I think the narrative is like things were great for undocumented people oh, and God. they lived in a humane, welcoming country. And then Trump came in and started doing bad things. And that's how Trump's presidency moves the entire country to the right. Right. Because if you yeah. if you make the new yeah. line Trump. And then everything Obama did is fine. Then you're like, wait, but Obama was the most deporting president of all time. Right. You know, Obama actually created the entire deportation machine that Trump is using. And Obama, you know, escalated these wars. And he, like, we met, he never closed Guantanamo, all this stuff. So right. then basically the whole conversation keeps moving to the right. And that's what I was saying, too, when it, like, when all those politicians in Washington are like, we right. are going to declare Washington a hate-free state and we're going to distinguish ourselves from Trump. That is such a low bar that yeah, totally. they can just go nuts with building all the prisons and jails they want to build and all these other things because they, yeah. as long as they don't like openly say transphobic tweets, like then they're going to be considered exactly. progressive. And that, that we need, I think there's another piece here, which is like, we're demobilized by the fact that we believe a lot of propaganda mm-hmm. about progressivism. And this is really visible to me in the, um, in the current democratic presidential hopefuls conversations. It's oh, yeah. just like these people just like, like, like I was saying, like Biden says he cares about trans people being killed. They can just throw this stuff up and, it, and it, it's like a mask, a mask of progressivism on top of like what their actual policies and plans are. Right. Um, another thing we see is like Bush is being hailed, you know, W. <laughs> like, ah, uh, I thought he was bad, but wow, would I give anything to have him back? It's like, Iraq? I mean, do you, you know, and so, sometimes it's just, I think it's a, decorum thing that yeah. that that people find so disgusting about trump which sure and, and then there's this whole debate you know did my friend um and a former guest karina moreno says like discourse is politics which is yeah. true you know labeling people rapists and murderers um is not just a question of kind of uh it's not just an academic semantics question yeah. but at the same time we can't pretend that when you don't do that you have a kind of progressive um acceptable setup yeah, um, Trump just know, took the the neoliberal the multiculturalism mask, yeah. mask right. off. Exactly. But I think, yeah. I mean, I was really freaked out after the Trump election when all these people who I thought were progressive were like putting out like fond pictures of the Obamas. And I was also really uh-huh, freaked yeah. out during the 2016 election when like queer and trans people I know were like backing Hillary Clinton. And I was just yeah. like, that warmonger, like, are yeah. you slay, slay queen, literally slay queen. Because she's a woman. And I'm just yeah. like, you know what, like they're really good at this point in putting women, people of color, and sometimes even LGBT people into positions of power to do the exact same harmful, brutal stuff. And we've got to be more complex and nuanced about yeah. how what we're supporting. I was just blown yeah. away. Truly. And anything you want to say about the candidates, by the way? No, I just like don't care at all, to be honest with you. Okay, yeah, I'm such a shameless Bernie bro. I'm like so... I mean, I, 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 when I was looking through your Twitter feed, I was like actually really appreciating the ways in which you were trying to break down how the Bernie bro story like hides people of color and women. And so I think that's yeah. like really legit. And um, and obviously like if somebody has to be president, it should be him. But I'm just like, uh, right. it's hard for me to like get excited <laughs> about it. That's funny if someone has to be president. I like that. Yeah, it's a good, that's like a great endorsement actually. I'd like to like um, get rid of that whole system. ASAP. Right, right. But while we have it, it's true that I have to go, okay. but I love well, talking you so to you. Yeah, I, me too, yeah. Let's stay in more touch. Definitely. I'm so glad to be reconnected. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Halper Show. 
Don't forget to stop by Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show to hear my bonus episode with Dean Spade. It's also my birthday, so feel free to support me for that reason at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. <laughs>